0: You're listening to an adult Sunday School class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.
1: So we are looking at the Confession We continue in our study of the Confession. We've reached chapter 26, and it's not going to be long before we've concluded. So let's look at the communion of saints. That word communion, it's from the Latin communio. For those of you who like Latin, it's derived from the word communis or common. Augustine believed it was derived from the word com, with... And unus, oneness. So, with union, we are united. And it carries with it the idea of participating in something which is common to everybody that's communion. So, it suggests a fellowship or mutual participation or a sharing with one another. And when we talk about the communion of saints, there is something specific that we'll talk about shortly that we share with one another. It has come to mean a meaningful connection or intimate relationship. So if you commune with someone, there is this idea of intimacy. Um, and if, by the way, the Lord's Supper, as we call it communion, there are parallels between the intimacy we have with one another and the intimacy we ha- which we have with Christ. It's an amazing thing. So communion, this participation with one another, is based on a union which binds together those who share this something in common. And the nature and the degree of our communion, this participation, depends on the nature and the intimacy of our union. So we commune with one another. We commune with our children. We commune with our spouses. That is the closest human relationship. There is a very intimate relationship there. The Christian's communion with Christ is based upon his mystical union with the Lord. So when we talk about the communion of saints, its basis is our union with Christ, which is why the first section of this chapter details that union. Its foundation lies in the eternal purpose of God who elects those who are saved. So the whole confession ties together. We talked about God's decree We talked about effectual calling. We're talking about the communion that we enjoy as a result and fruit of all of that. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. So the Christian's communion with other believers is based upon our loving union with one another. That's just by way of preliminary introduction. Any comments or questions on that? Okay. So we get into the section 1 of chapter 26. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with Him and His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. So it's beginning to show the foundation of our communion with one another. This is the basis of why we're united to each other. Union with Christ is not essential There is the essential union that exists between the persons of the Trinity. That's not what this is about. Union with Christ, our union with Christ is not personal, like the the union with Christ in his person and natures. That's not what this is about. Our union with Christ is not political, like a king and his subjects. They're united, they share a kingdom. And our union with Christ is not moral, like you and I have a friendship. That's a union of sorts. Our union with Christ is not essential, it's not personal, it's not political, it's not moral. It is legal, or covenantal, and it's spiritual, or vital. And that's the one we're talking about here in section 1. The spiritual, vital, or mystical union between Christ and His church. Any questions on that? The type of union this is? We're united to Christ covenantally and spiritually. So we're in covenant with God, a federal relationship, and we're filled with the Spirit. Ernie? Just one quick question. So why, why do you say it's not personal? A lot of people would describe it that way. I it. Yeah, that's a good question. It's... It is personal in the sense that we are in a personal relationship with Jesus. But when we use that word technically, it's the personal union of Christ's person with his natures. That's a very different thing. That's the technical theological use of the word. But you're right. It, we have a personal relationship with Jesus. Don? Yeah. Well, then going to political, I feel like we are a part of the kingdom of God. Yes. That's exactly right. And we are under a king. You're exactly right. The, the union with Christ that we're talking about, that's not the political relationship that we enjoy. There's this idea of we're covenantally in Christ. Yeah. So when we're talking about union with Christ, that's what we're talking about. But you're right. He's a king. We're his subjects. We're in the kingdom. What do you mean legal? Legal, um, covenantal. Um, like when, when there is a uh, husband and wife, they're in a covenant relationship, it's illegal. There's a legality to it. You are legally in covenant with your husband. <laughs> like it or not. <laughs> and I know you like it. You take his name. He assumes your debts. There is this legal aspect to our covenantal relationship. Yeah, So that's why the state's interested in marriage, or it should be. It's the building block of society, and the state has an interest that these marriages stay together and are healthy. There's a legal aspect to it, which is why we get, that we get, or at least we used to get, benefits. Tax benefits and things like that. But there's also this spiritual vital union, that His Spirit lives within us. And he animates us. And we, uh, we live because of Christ. And that's the one we're talking about here. In section 1 of chapter 26, we're talking about this mystical union, this vital spiritual union with Christ. Sometimes it's expressed in Scripture as believers in Christ, and sometimes it's expressed as Christ in believers. It goes both ways. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're in Christ. We're united to Christ. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? He's in us. So there is this mystical union, this spiritual vital relationship. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, so you cannot bear fruit without me. So there we have both. We're in Him, He's in us. This relationship is likened to the vine and the branch in John 15, to the stone, the cornerstone and the building in 1 Peter 2, husband and wife in Ephesians 5, the head and the body in Ephesians 4. So all of these metaphors or analogies are used in Scripture to describe this union with Christ. Christ. And the bonds of this union are two. You know, oftentimes we say we're united to Christ by faith, which is true. But we're united to Christ by the Spirit on Christ's part, looking from a godly perspective, heavenly perspective, and we're united to Christ by faith from a human perspective. Two bonds. Unite us to Christ, we're joined to the Lord. And so close and so intimate is this relationship between believers in Christ that we are said to be one spirit with him. It's, it's a mystical relationship. It's mysterious. It's hard to understand. We would never understand anything about it if it hadn't been revealed. So the union between Christ and his people can never be dissolved or broken. It is an eternal union. Once united to Christ... Always united to Christ, which as we'll see in the sermon, it's one of the reasons why our salvation is secure. Unless Christ perishes, we'll never perish because we're one with him. Any questions or comments on this part of section one? Well, to highlight this uh, spiritually or mystically, as as you pointed out, is that we
2: are seated with him in the heavenly places right now. Exactly. You see that in Ephesians. And uh, earlier on in Ephesians, that uh, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment. You know, the, the, the surety. That's right. You know, the, the, that's the security.
1: That's right. That's an excellent point, because that's the guarantee, like you said, the surety. And um, because He lives within us, that, that'll never change. Never change. John? I'll all of all know. Us. Yeah, there is a, there's, it's, it's a dual aspect there, because there's nothing wrong with you saying to yourself, I am united to Christ. But you're right, Scripture focuses on the body, on the church, on the branches, right? So it is this corporate nature that Christ is united to His church. It's a very good point. It's always us. But that doesn't mean that me in my own closet can't say I am united to Christ. Yeah. And assurance. It goes a long way for our assurance of salvation. Um, Like I said, this is union with Christ is perhaps one of the most important doctrines of soteriology. Because it shows that everything Christ has done and is doing is what we are doing in principle. Like Mark said, we're seated with him in the heavenly places. It continues, all saints that are united to Christ in their head have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glories. So because we're united to him, we have this fellowship in all the experiences of his life. We suffer with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. We died with Christ. He was our representative. He's our head. Christ lives in us, and we've been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places, as Mark said. We share in His victories. We are more than conquerors. We reign with Him, and we will be glorified with Him. So union with Christ inevitably focuses on the ultimate glorification that we'll enjoy with Christ. That's where we're going. And so all of our sufferings and trials and disappointments in this life have to be viewed from that eternal perspective. God allows us to endure some of these things. Why? Well, because He's got the end in view. He wants you and I to be blameless. And part of the work is the cross. It's hard. Because we share in all the benefits He obtained, it is said we've come to share in Christ. So, any benefit you have justification, adoption, sanctification, all those things any benefit you have is because you're united to Him, you're in Christ. Paul never ceases to uh, desire to say in Christ in all of his letters. He fulfilled the law and satisfied justice, so you and I are entitled to the benefit of justification. We can stand before God without fear, as those who are justified in Christ were adopted into God's family, made heirs with Christ, because He is an heir of eternal, the eternal inheritance. You are. You've done nothing to (laughs) earn it. You can't buy it, purchase it, borrow it. But you are an heir because He is. He obtained the promise of the Spirit so that we're sanctified in soul and body until we're perfected. And because of our union with Christ, we enjoy this intimate fellowship with Him through prayer and the sacraments and so forth. We find this in Revelation 3. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. There is this wonderful fellowship that we enjoy with Christ. Any questions on that part? All of this is important because as we confess the Apostles Creed, we say, I believe in the communion of saints. And most of us don't know what that means. You know. Fellowship. We can kind of get together for a social hour. That's not what it means. That doesn't exhaust it. Julia? that Jesus is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Yeah. And so he has union with us in that and then he took on our frail bodies and can um, sympathize with us because of that. Right. Yeah, he, he partook of human nature and he shares the experience of living in a fallen world. He had all the infirmities of human flesh without sin, hunger, tiredness and so forth. So yeah, he can empathize with us, sympathize with those that he represents. Okay, so Scripture is very comfortable saying that in the believer's heart, Christ Jesus dwells by faith. That's why it's rightly called a mystical union because it is not something that you and I could ever come up with on our own. There's this mysterious nature to it. It's something that had to be revealed. It transcends every other type of union and communion that can be known by human experience. The central analogy of this union is marriage, and Paul says this mystery is profound. So something about marriage helps us to understand a little bit about this union with Christ that marriage, the marriage relationship is the most intimate relationship on earth between humans. And there is something in that intimacy that God has established that helps us understand what's going on between Christ and His church. We're His bride. He takes care of us. He protects us. He watches over us. He provides for us. He defends us. And He gives us life. So we can't explain it. We're trying to do our best, but we simply declare it because that's what God has revealed. There are many things in Scripture that we can't explain, and it's sad that some people refuse to believe the things they can't understand. Well, what kind of God or what kind of religion would you want that you can explain everything? There is an element of mystery in the Christian faith, and this is one of them. We don't understand it, but we know it's true. In some mysterious way that we cannot explain, we participate with Christ in his redemptive deeds. So when he died on the cross, all of us died. We were all represented in him. Remember what it says somewhere about how Levi was in the loins of Abraham when he paid tithes to Melchizedek. Well, they weren't even born yet. But somehow when Abraham paid those tithes of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, they paid Well, in the same way, when Christ died, we died. When Christ ascended, we ascended. It's an incredible thing. We're not merged with Him. We're not confused with Him. We're not actually participants with Him in His work. He did it. He alone accomplished salvation, but we have fellowship with Him in the merit of His obedience and sacrifice and the transforming power of His life and the redemptive benefits that he secured for us. All the bennies. We get all the bennies. We belong to him. We serve him. We work with him. We bear fruit for him and are set apart for him in all things. That's union with Christ. So important. It undergirds a lot of the confession and the catechisms. In the larger catechism, there's a whole slew of questions and answers that deal with union. It's so important. Any questions on this part? Jim? Jim? Can you then say that if we don't die with him, we can't rise? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, very good. And that's why repentance is one of the fruits that give evidence of dying with Christ. You know, somebody can say, "I love Jesus." Okay, we'll prove it. Well, are you mortifying sin? Have you died with Christ? Romans six. Are you being sanctified? Is there improvement in your life? You know, I can't read your heart. I can't declare you non-believer, but I can say, you know what? Here are some ways you can look at your own life and see evidence of dying with Christ and rising with Christ. Being united to one another in love. Now it talks about the saints. We have communion in each other's gifts and graces. Given all that we've said, we're all united to Christ. We're obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to our mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. So, because of our union with Christ, we're united to one another. It's an important concept that this is a body, one body. And we enjoy the communion of saints. Because we're united to Christ, united to one another, there is this communion. We're a family. But even closer than that, we're a body. We're joined to him as our head, and we're filled with and partake of the same indwelling spirit. And so all the exhortations in Scriptures to the one another's. You know, Linda had a great idea years ago that we would do a series on one another's. And it's true. There's so many one another's in Scripture. Encourage one another. Love one another. Forgive one another. We share the same faith. Objectively, We confess it together, the doctrines. And subjectively, you and I trust in Christ. We have the same Lord. We are united in love. We're of one heart and soul, according to Acts 4. We see Christ's image in each other. We recognize it. Or at least we see, part, we see reflections of it. Christ being formed in you and me. What a wonderful thing. It's not always perfect. We rub each other the wrong way occasionally, but we see the glimmers of Christ's likeness, which will be perfected in glory. It's the best proof to ourselves and the clearest evidence to others that we're true disciples of Christ. We love each other. You know? Uh, I forget who was telling me the other day, you know, I, if I wasn't part of the church, I never would be friends with these people. <laughs> And you'd probably say the same thing. We'd never be friends. Um, Because the way the world goes, you're pigeonholed in various segments, right? But we're part of the body of Christ. We love each other. We should. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, 1 John tells us how we can know if we're Christians. Righteousness, love, and belief. This tells us how the world can know that we're Christians. And the primary evidence for the world to see that you're a Christian is if you love the brethren. That's what Jesus says. John teaches elsewhere that the absence of brotherly love proves that saving faith is lacking Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. How that convicts me is not so much that I do wrong things to my brother. Rather, I neglect my brother. Sins of omission. That's the hard part. Now, I've often said, you know, our ladies are so proactive in their relationships. And us guys, as long as we don't hit each other, we're okay, right? (laughs) Right? So I think we need to work on it. Any questions on the last part of section one? Okay. Um, He does talk about the um, performance of such duties. We're comprised of the body of Christ, is composed of many members. We each have gifts and graces. As in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So God gives gifts. The Spirit distributes them according to His sovereign wisdom. (laughs) To each, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So the reason you have the gifts you do is for the benefit of all of us. So you and I are meant to be profitable to each other and to promote the welfare of the whole church. I'm in, a con- I'm in an ongoing conversation with a friend at Life Center. The guy, he's, he's brilliant. He, he knows so much. He's got so much knowledge about the Bible. He can rattle off scripture passages. But I told him, he's not a member of a church. I said, you need to use this for the common good. You're withholding it from Christ's body you know so you can have all the knowledge you want but if you don't love you're nothing you're nothing but a clanging symbol we need to be using our gifts for one another and the welfare of the church we're obliged as believers to perform those duties that'll serve the common good bear with one another forgive each other rejoice and weep with one another pray with and for one another and as we have opportunity to do good to all especially believers Public and private, worship, and private fellowship or encouragement. Any comments or questions before we go on to section two? Okay.
2: Uh, here's, a, here's a question. John? There's a few different lists of gifts in Scripture. Some of them seem to be more like top gifts of healing. Other ones are to be like in moments more it's books and administration. Seems that there might be different types sets of gifts—a common set of gifts for general well-being—and a different set of gifts that was more for the establishment of the church in, like, First Corinthians. Give me comments on how both the types of gifts and how to understand and use
1: them. Right. Yeah, the type of gifts. I don't think any list that Paul gives is exhaustive. Uh, I think he's giving us, you know, examples of gifts that Christ gives to His people. I think there is a distinction between ordinary and extraordinary gifts. As you said, the extraordinary gifts were given to establish the foundation of the church. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Once the foundation is laid, there's no need for another foundation. So those extraordinary gifts are no longer needed which I think is one of the errors of my charismatic background, is that they looked at those gifts as just normative for the whole church era. But again, once the foundation is laid, we no longer need the extraordinary gifts, which reveal revelation from God. But the ordinary gifts continue. The Spirit gives to each one um, for for the common good, and we are to use those as providence leads. And this is one of the problems. Like when I was a new Christian, I took one of these tests. I was in a Bible study or something, and I took a test. Okay, let's find out what your gift is. Oh, well, it looks like I don't, I don't have the gifts I want. I have these gifts over here, you know. But I think it's not like that. I think what happens is there's a need in the church, and you see it, and you're able to meet it. And you figure out in practice what your gifts are. Let's say you have the gift of mercy, and you uh, have this great compassion for people who are suffering in the church, more than more than ordinary compassion. And you just you just your gift makes room for itself. You begin to show mercy and take care of people. Well, that's your gift. Administration. There are some who are very good at administration. I'm not one, but there are some who are very good, and they begin to administrate. It's just natural. It's like the officers. I think. Like an elder, he begins, his gifts begin to work even before he's ordained. So the church says, you know what? There's a person, we recognize some things in him. He's even shepherding even now. I think God's raising him up. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that's one of the ways to look at these gifts to use them. You don't have to be ordained to use your gifts. Put it that way. Obligations were by profession bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. We are bound to worship together. And in performing such other spiritual services as tend to our mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to our several abilities and necessities. So, professing believers comprise the visible church in which we manifest Christian unity. My friend at Life Center, how are you manifesting the unity of the brethren by not joining yourself to a church. I don't think he's trying to be antagonistic. I, think, I don't think he ever thought about it. So our conversations are very interesting. I can see him softening. Um, but he's not, he's not testifying to the unity of the brethren if he doesn't join a church. We're bound to promote this visible unity among believers in three ways. Public worship the ordinances serve as bonds of union by which we maintain our unity mutually edifying spiritual services sunday school christian fellowship joint prayer these kinds of things and helping one another by relieving burdens and meeting needs we share our substance if anyone has the world's goods if God's given you wealth and you see your brother in need, and you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? It gets right down to the wallet. It's not confined locally, but it extends to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, which is what the confession goes on to say. So it's not just it has to be your next-door neighbor. It's not just the person sitting next to you in the pew. If there is a missionary in China, for example, who needs help, and you're able to help out, you can help. So we maintain this fellowship, worship, and we help each other in various ways. I think the Heidelberg is helpful here. The Heidelberg Catechism says, what do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with Him and share in all His treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use His gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. Very concise. It shows us this idea that we are in Christ, we have communion with Him, and because of that, we are communing with one another. We have equal right to all the gospel promises and equal participation in Christ and His benefits. We're united to His whole person, His natures. We enjoy the benefits of redemption. We have in common with one another all the benefits of salvation. We all share that, and there's enough to go around. It's not like, you know, if Greg gets a little bit of justification, it takes away from my justification. We have justification together. Each of us is endowed with gifts to serve and edify the whole body, and we're obligated to use them for God's glory and each other's good. Obligated. You know, it's interesting to me, and this again convicts me mightily. Matthew 25, when the king separates the sheep and the goats, when he talks to the sheep, he says, The reason that I know, or the reason I'm going to commend you is because of the things you did, the least of these. He talks to the goats. The reason I'm going to condemn you is because of what you didn't do. They're not sins of commission. They're sins of omission. In Matthew 25, at the great judgment, that's convicting. We're obligated to use our gifts for God's glory and the good of the body. I believe in the communion of saints. That's what it means. I believe all saints are united to Christ by the Spirit and faith, And the gifts entrusted to them by Christ are to be used for their own salvation as well as the common good of the church as a whole. When you and I confess the Apostles' Creed, that's what we mean. There's a lot more to it than just having a social hour. Third section. This communion which the saints have with Christ does not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of the Godhead or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. Now, you have to recognize, historically, they were dealing with some errors at that time, which were pretty radical. It guards against the heretical belief that union and communion with Christ means deification, that somehow we become gods. The familists, I don't know if you've ever heard of that before, or family of love. They thought that they were fully possessed by Christ's spirit, deified. They're an offshoot of the Anabaptists. Founded in 1540 by Hendrik Nicolaes, endowed with the spirit of the true love of Jesus Christ. It was a mystic religion that affirmed the inner light and the birth of Christ in the soul. Don't ask me what that means. I haven't the slightest idea. <laughs> they use some weird words. Interestingly, Nicolaus claimed superiority over Christ. Moses preached hope. Christ preached faith. Nicolaus preached love. The greatest of these is love. I know, crazy. But this is what the confession, the divines are dealing with this particular heresy at the time when they're writing the confession. They denied the deity of Christ. They claimed that man could become identified with God. They used phrases like godded in God and Christed in Christ, which means we share in the divine nature. So they added section three to deal with this. They saw themselves as perfect in this life, and could not acknowledge the need for forgiveness. They rejected outward worship, though they would remain in churches seeing themselves as elite. So, yeah, I'm going to come to worship to help you, but I'm above the fray. I don't need to be here. That was their perspective. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So, very important. Um, I don't know how... I mean, there are heresies even today that kind of have some of these nuances. I don't know if they would say that they're familists, but you can see some of these things working themselves out. Nor does their communion with one another as saints take away or infringe the title or property which each man has in his goods and possessions. So I'm thankful for this because the, the divines affirm the right of private property. The German Anabaptists maintain that we have all things in common, Christian communism. But our communion with one another doesn't take away the rights of private property. property. God gives those things to you. They belong to you, not to me, not to us to you. The Eighth Commandment implies the morality of private property. If I'm not to steal what belongs to you, it implies that you have the right to own it. Right? The Tenth Commandment, if I'm not to covet what belongs to you, it implies that you have the right to private property. Let him labor, doing honest work, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's the reason God gives us private property, so that we can share with others. Remember the obligations of the communion of saints? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Excuse me. So again, this idea throughout Scripture that we are, it's okay, it's moral to have private property. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to be wealthy. God gives wealth to certain Christians, and that's a good thing. Because they know how to use it wisely. Most of the time, if he gives it to them and his spirit lives within them, they're not going to be corrupted by the wealth that they have. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and so forth, so there's the idea that you are allowed to have private property. Some claim that the early church set a precedent for us in having all things in common, but the problem there is is that those Christians had things in common because they voluntarily shared their possessions. The church didn't take them. It was voluntary, just like today. We take up the collection. It's voluntary. We give. We're cheerful givers, or we're supposed to be. While it remained unsold, Ananias, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? It belonged to him. So, again, the end of section 3. In section 3, he's dealing with two errors. The one, radical, familists, we become God. The other, that there's no such thing as private property, Christian communism. And both of them are being refuted. Any questions? John?
2: <clears throat> Sorry for throw a right in here. Um, the thinking about sharing with one another, and sometimes when it only hurts, and sometimes when we share with somebody, hurts them in their ability to grow. And also, in the other French, is sharing Sharing here, there's, there's general wealth around us, even the poorest parts of, say, this general area are still wealthy compared to all history, and even the world large. How does that affect if, our, if if the, the, the commandment is not that you be rich and they be poor, but that everyone should be equal, how can we how can we live that out? How can we live that out even across uh, country country boundaries and across across the whole world?
1: Let me understand. You said we're all supposed to be equal.
2: Uh, that was the I was thinking of when, when they were collecting the money from I think Corinthians to Jerusalem. He said you gave beyond your means to help them with their a famine, right? And not that they be rich and you be poor, but that we should have general. I think it's a general all. He said you should be all equal or a general equality.
1: I'm not sure he said equal. I think what he said was, look, if they're gonna, if you're gonna share in their spiritual things, let them share in your material things. Yeah, I, this I, is I, one of the I reasons. Mean, it's, I'm not,
2: I'm that, but yeah. There seemed to be a, not that they're rich and you're, you're poor, but that we're we are sharing as. we...
1: Right. Yeah. No, that's good. And I think you're right, that in the body of Christ, not just in this church, but in the body of Christ globally, visibly, we're to share as we are able. Um, I don't think that means that we need to entertain any false guilt, that somehow, you know, we're blessed with all this prosperity, and there's some Christian somewhere who's suffering so much that we just feel guilty. No, no. For whatever reason, God has blessed this particular congregation with prosperity. We need to be wise, distribute that as we can to help others. Wherever, you know, what's the teaching of Jesus? Not who is your neighbor, but are you being a neighbor to others? And I think we should try our best. But if we, if we rack our brains and torture our souls because of all the poverty in the world, we, we can't possibly solve it. You're always going to have the poor. So God will give us opportunities to share what we have as we're able, just like He'll give every congregation opportunities to share what they have as they're able. Then, hopefully in His providence, He'll take care of His own. Um, now, if we're not sharing, if we are hoarding, if we're being selfish, then we ought to be convicted. That, maybe that's behind your question. I don't know. Maybe we ought to think about ways that we can somehow use this prosperity for the good of others who haven't experienced prosperity. But it's a very difficult question. And it's not a question that we should answer for one another in terms of like how much you give. It's your conscience and the Lord. God loves a cheerful giver. Jim? Just There was in the Bible there's no such thing as a parable about the talents the one got 10 he invested them got 10 more and then there was the one who just had one and the one that had two so there was never this thing it's how you use what what christ has given us right in that not that we all should all of a sudden become the same or have everybody get a trophy kind of Right. No, that's, that's a very good point. We're equal in the eyes of God as made in His image, but there's no equality in providential circumstances. I mean, you're right. Some get more, some get less, and that's according to God's wisdom. That doesn't mean that we stay and say, hey, I'm one of the rich guys, too bad. I think John's point, as a rich person, we need to be looking ways to, to share. Um, Julia, <laughs> Rihanna. Yeah, um, a few
0: slides back when you were listing off um, the parts that we have to um, participate as uh, in the body in terms of um, uh, church, you know, participating in church, participating in meeting deeds, and praying for each other. Um, can you help me? I always feel like a wet blanket because in our culture, you know, there's a lot of like independent worldwide Bible studies that people are participating in, who are doing those things in terms of prayer chains and keeping in touch. But I think a lot of times, like, because there's not like the theology of teaching about the church, they leave that one part of those three that you listed out, and they are doing those things, and it almost substitutes, so then when someone's telling me that they're participating in this, I always feel like, obviously there's really good things that are happening, and people come to the Lord, and know about Him, and I always feel like this jerk who's like, you know, like, oh, you know, probably join a church, you know, is it connected to a church? And even with having teenagers now, because have friends who have different
1: ideas about church and different ideas about how to participate in things. Right. Can you just give me an idea of how to do Yeah, I think, I think Christians, uh, the way that we're wired as the Spirit fills us and we read our Bibles, we know that we're supposed to pray with and for one another, which happens. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, we serve, we, we do things that are kind to others, but in our day and age for whatever reason, the visible church has been so demeaned that it's almost like an afterthought. It's irrelevant. It's a man-made thing that, well, I'll go to church because I kind of like it, but my real ministry is with my friends and with whatever else is going on. And I think it's, you know, it's an error that we need to understand that all those things are important and the church is very important too. Would
2: you participate
0: in something that was disconnected from a church and that means like if it was doing a Bible study, it was... You know,
1: how would you communicate? It's not wrong to have a private Bible study by any means. Sure, I mean, if I wanted to. But that wouldn't wouldn't prevent me from being a part of a local church and seeing my local church as kind of primary. Because God promises to bless the public means of grace, particularly. Is there a responsibility of the
0: people that are leading that who are allowing people to not be, to be part of, and maybe not communicating that they need to be part of a church or checking that
1: they're part of a church? I think that they should. They, if they leadership, they should be encouraging their members, whatever it is, to be a part of a local church. Sure, I do. And it's too bad that it's not promoted. I've kept you too long. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the communion of saints the things that we enjoy with Christ being united to Him and communing with, all, with Him and all of His benefits. And thank you for the communion we enjoy with one another. Please help us to fulfill our obligations and prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.